BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Folks, it's the end of February. This episode is late. But it's not my fault, I promise. Uh, it's sort of my fault, but not completely my fault. I was waiting on some information. So uh, we'll have that information for you here. We'll share it at the end of this episode. But right now, I do want to introduce our guest for this one. It is Paco Carici. He flew the A6 Intruder and the F-14, which I know, again, it's not really in our wheelhouse here at the Low Level Hell podcast where we typically talk about helicopters. But like I said a really long time ago, I'm really interested in anything that flies low and uh, drops bombs or shoots missiles and things like that. So the A6 Intruder has always been one of those aircraft that's been kind of interesting to me. And uh, I came across Paco uh, through some other uh, podcasts that I'm working on and uh, sent him a note. And he was uh, more than willing to come on to the show and talk a little bit about his experience flying the A6. I was completely blown away by some of the stuff I learned. I think you guys are going to enjoy it too. So without further ado, this episode's guest... Paco. Copy, cleared hot. One's in from the north. Confirmers still moving east. Paco, that's excellent. Still moving east. Cleared hot. Altitude, altitude. All right, and I'm, I'm sipping coffee as we go. Is that annoying? or? No, no it's totally fine. Um, okay. It adds a personal vibe to it. If it's annoying, I'll just cut it out. But yeah, it's no big deal. Okay, cool. Um, Normally, normally I am too, but I just had one not too too long ago, and then I'll I'll start tweaking. Um, <laughs> have right. a donut. You were, yeah, that's right. Have the sun bring me bring me the donut. <laughs> I need to like be able to start putting in like a list of types of donuts that I want because I'm not a big Dunkin' Donuts fan. I told him I wanted him to work at Krispy Kreme. Oh, um, but don't, doesn't Krispy Kreme only basically have one you know donut type? I'm not a, much of a donut guy. Period, because it's just a slippery slope, so I gotta stay away. Sure, from it. right. Well, I've given in to my inner demons, but um, <laughs> no, they've they've sort of branched out in recent years. In fact, and I th- I think you're, well, you're an airline guy, so you can appreciate a Biscoff cookie. Uh, a Krispy I Kreme used to. Is... I've been doing it way too long. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. You've had too much. Um. Well, apparently they just released the Biscoff uh, donut. Uh, so geez. it's got it's got some sort of yeah so i'm gonna have to go check it out uh but anyway that's beside the point well that's probably a good place to start so uh yeah welcome to the show where we talk about donuts and occasionally aircraft um <laughs> and cookies when did you when did you leave so you're saying you did 10 years active duty 10 years in reserve when did you leave active duty uh october 1996 a long time ago 
96. Okay. So you're an old man. Um, uh, thank what, you. <laughs> <laughs> and what, the show's uh, over. And that's it. He just disconnected. <laughs> um, no, you don't, you don't sound old. Um, no, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm 45 this summer. So I, I, I'm embracing my age. Um, what, what were you flying when you got out? You're flying F-14s? Yep, exactly. I, I was uh, finishing my F-14 tour in Miramar and my, the end of my active duty Navy career coincided perfectly with the tragedy of the U.S. Navy turning over Miramar to the Marine Corps. So <laughs> shut the door. Was that, that like, was that like the garden spot for the Navy? Oh my God. Miramar was the best base in the world. It was really? just an amazing spot. Yeah. San Diego, great weather. Lots yeah. of fun stuff. The club at the time was always rocking, so it, it was yeah. a, a great spot. Yeah, San Diego. That's I've only been there once. I I went to the um, what is that Marine base that's there? Yeah, Miramar. Other than Miramar, <laughs> uh, the other one, uh, Pendleton. I think yeah. it was Pendleton. Yeah. Um, so we stayed there, and I think Oceanside so it was like the north side of. of mm-hmm san diego but yeah just the weather was gorgeous i've always told myself and this is terrible but i've always told myself if i become homeless i'm going to make the pilgrimage and i'm just going to stay out there because it would just seem like it was always gorgeous regardless of the time of year yeah i mean i don't believe that that's an original uh sort of mindset for (laughs) judging by our yeah yeah that well i guess that's probably what drew out i was like wow there's a lot of but i but i couldn't blame them i was like wow this is really really yeah. nice weather um and everyone i talked to said it it's like basically like this all the time so so the marines took over Miramar. is that where they fly like they're well i guess they have f-35s now but they had harriers and stuff that's what they took that over no it wasn't harriers it was, a, it was their hornet base and uh, a bunch of helicopters oh. so oh, your oh. people um okay and uh the v-22 i believe was there i i actually have not been back to miramar since 96 so i you just I, washed your hands of it you're like screw yeah that. <laughs> I've had enough of this place. Yeah, it's dirty now. It's tainted. Yeah. Um. So, did you spend a majority of your career? What did you fly mostly? Uh, I pretty much split it evenly between the A6 Intruder uh, and the F14 Tomcat. So I did basically a tour in each aircraft, and then okay. I spent the after I re- uh, retired out of uh, I'm sorry, left active duty. I went into the reserves and I'm a, uh, concurrent with my airline job and I was flying F5s up in Fallon uh, for 10 years. So I did that. I probably I have more hours in the to- in the uh, F5 than I do in the Tomcat or the A6. Sure. Um, okay. Is the a- is the aggressor job just like a dream? It is the best flying I will ever have done in my life. Yeah, it was phenomenal. Really great. It was a a perfect airplane for that mission, uh, you know, Capable enough that if uh, if you got a kill on the on the fighters, that there was a learning moment, right? That's the whole point of an aggressor is to teach sure. teach the fighters how to do their job more, uh, you know, more professionally. Um, so we were fighting as hard as we could in the F five, and occasionally we would get a kill. And if we did, there was an easily identifiable moment where the fighter made a mistake, and that that basically was our mission. Right. Okay. I, I guess because, you know, with my background, we don't have that. You know, we don't have aggressors because we don't do air to air and stuff. I mean, we, we have places where there's dedicated opposing forces, but, they're, you know, generally ground forces or something like that. So I'm always kind of fascinated by that because I, I think that's probably interesting on your plate, because even if you lose, you win. You know, like you're just you're just there kind of having fun 
yeah. but still being a competent foe. But if you lose, it's not like it's not a it's not a hit on your ego. No. Like I imagine it is for the Hornet dude when that five kills him. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, we're basically like the Washington Generals to the Globetrotters. You know, we're we're there to we're there to lose. But, you know, unlike the generals, we we pack a sting. So if you know, like I said earlier, uh, we in the F5, we could just really fight as hard as we wanted um, because yeah. it was such an, an inferior airplane that uh, if we did manage to get a kill, there was, you know, you could walk up to the whiteboard and the debrief and draw all the spaghetti up there um, that we use for, for debriefing um, our engagements. And you, you know, you could say, this is where you made your BFM error. And that was, that was kind of the big term there, BFM error, basic fighter maneuver error. And you'd put a red box around it and sort of poke it with your pen yeah. and go, you know, you shouldn't reverse in front of the, in front of the bandit or whatever, whatever the case may be. Right. So yeah. yes, to okay. your point, it was super fun. We could fight really hard and we're killed and we're like, yeah, good job, dude. And then, uh, you know, when we, when we won, uh, secretly we would be thrilled, but you know, sure. Like a parent being a stern with his child, you know, <laughs> like, Oh man, you, you really could do better here. Yeah. Even when they like, do something that makes you laugh. You can't laugh in front of them. It's like, oh. No, yeah. I mean, it, so the debriefs, <laughs> you know, Top Gun teaches uh, this sort of very removed um, clinical debrief style. Um, right. And, you know, when I, the squadron I was in, uh, the VFC 13 Saints, it, it, it was and is, uh, you know, the, the, the Top Gun uh, ancillary force up in Fallon. So, you know, Top Gun lives up in Fallon and they're famous and everybody knows about them. And they're the uh, active duty guys, and they are very serious. They take everything very seriously. Uh, um, you know, they they have a even their humor they take seriously. It's sort of all <laughs> regimented, um, and they're super good guys. But they are Top Gun, so they have a brand and they have a, a mission sure. and, and standards. And then the Saints, the squadron I was in, um, we are uh, a third reservist, a third active duty, and a third um, full time support is what the Navy calls them. So. Guys that are technically in the reserve community, but they're on full time. So, um, okay. you know, they're not deploying. They 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 just sort of augment reserve units throughout the reserve system. Um, so it's a it's it's a super heavy reservist uh, mindset, um, but we're held to essentially the same standards as Top Gun. I mean, the, the, you know, we're, that's what we strive for. Uh, so yeah. that the, the way that. Um, you know, we brief and debrief and flyer missions, everything like that. You know, we, we judge the quality of how we do that by the standards that Top Gun sets. Hmm. So uh, the, the debriefs, you know, when you're in a room of eight people and there's a, there's a whole bunch of sort of aggressive, uh, you know, yeah. high octane egos in there, not in, you know, you, you're a helicopter guy. I'm sure it's the same thing. It's not like the movie Top Gun where we're sort of right. trying to fight each other in a comical way. It's just like everybody wants to achieve the mission and 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 be the the guy that made it to the target and, and you know, yeah, it's be predominantly smart. Predominantly type Yeah. Well, they're all type. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. type A. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so you to but, to make it as clinical as possible, you know, you never say I shot you. You say the bandit shot, you know, Rage mm -hmm. One uh, at at this moment in time. Uh, yeah. Rage One made this error. Uh, you know, so it's as much as possible you depersonalize it and make it clinical so that people can accept the critique without, you know, it feeling like an affront to their capabilities. Yeah, you kind of soften the blow, but still make the point that you, you messed up. Exactly. Um, okay. 
so I imagine the selection process to get into a unit like that is is fairly robust or, or I mean, how does that work? Uh, yeah, I mean, I got lucky because um, a buddy of mine that I was in active duty with had gone to that squadron as an active duty pilot. Uh, and he called me up one day and he's like, Hey, we're, one of the guys is retiring out of this unit. Um, so you mm-hmm. should put a package in. So when I, I put my package in and I, I can't remember how many people I was competing with, say a dozen or so for one spot. Mm-hmm. And you know, you got to go up there and interview and literally my package is probably 30, 40 pages. And, um, it is in retrospect, you know, when I was in the moment, it just felt like the thing to do. Like, uh, it was just the, sure. the, the speeding train that I was on. But uh, in retrospect, it, it does seem like it was a fairly competitive process to get into this unit. And it, there's a couple of reasons. One is, you know, there's high standards, but also reservists stay in units forever. I was in that unit yeah. for 10 years. You know, if you get, if you yeah. get a guy that you, uh, or a gal, and, you know, there's plenty of women there now, uh, a person that you don't like or is not pulling their weight, then um, it's kind of a bummer because they take up a whole slot. Yeah. And then they're entrenched. I remember my, my first, my career started in the national guard and it was, it, yeah, it was kind of that clubhouse mentality of like, well, there's only so many slots and until Bill moves on, you know, John's kind of stuck where he's at. So yeah, I can see that. Was it, was it completely, um, like an administrative recruitment or, or process or did you have to like go up there and like, you know, like do any like check rides or anything? Oh no. I mean, I was, you know, it's the, fighter community in the Navy is relatively small, um, sure. certainly compared to the Air Force. Uh, and, um, you know, so dudes vouch for you. Yeah. Yeah. My buddy vouched for yeah. me. I, I, you know, commanding officers were called that kind of stuff. So there was, sure. gotcha. you know, and I, I, I had flown an aircraft or a couple of them in the fleet, which is, you know, you, you don't make it to that level without having at least some modicum of competence. Right. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, I mean, I don't know much about the F5, but it was used in combat, right? I mean, it, in Vietnam, it was used. Yeah. So the F5 is a very widely proliferated aircraft, but it was never yeah. really used by American forces. So there's a right. bunch of foreign air forces that fly it even today. Um, mm. uh, but it was, it, it was, it was, Built as a cheap, almost as good as American Air Air Forces aircraft to sell, you know, to foreign countries, and they were they were very insulted by that. You know, like you want us to buy your, <laughs> you know, your your grade D beef, yeah, um, your Wish dot com fighter, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it had a slow start, but then we, I think we, you know, we give a bunch to the Vietnamese, and you know, it, it's there are a number of nations around the world that ended up flying the F5 and it's a, you know, for what it is, it, 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 Northrop did a great job of, of building a cheap, almost as good as American fighter. Yeah. Okay. How does, um, and it, it, we're just chatting because at this point, this is not even what I invited you on the podcast for, but I'm kind of interested myself. So yeah. how does, how does this change or does it change this whole aggressor thing? Cause I know there's like a, like a contract company now that does that stuff. Was it called ACE? Top ace or something like that. Ace is high. I don't know. Yeah, there's probably four or five of them. It's that's a interesting and, and long conversation. So I actually fly <laughs> for a company called Tech Air. Uh, okay. I fly F fives for Tech Air, uh, and um, the the world of uh, contract adversary uh, just comes from the fact. Well, there's a couple factors. One, there's not as many 
fighter planes as there used to be on on the right. active duty roster, right? So if you take off with 20 planes and you need some adversaries, it's more difficult to find 20 planes to oppose you. Right. Uh, and two, the planes these days are so freaking expensive that, you know, it's it's cost prohibitive to have 20 F-35s take off and have 20 F-35s oppose them. That's just right. insanely expensive. So, you know, 20 years ago, this company, ATAC, I think, I'm not sure if they were the first, but they're the first ones that I can remember. Uh, they started uh, selling themselves out as former, um, you know, Top Gun and, and Air Force uh, adversary guys uh, that are now flying um, commercially available fighter planes. So they had A-4s and... Um, uh, I think it was Mirages. I, I don't even know what they were flying, but some older airframes similar to the F-5. Uh, and right. for a fraction of the cost, they could put some metal up in the sky for the, the good guys to go fight against. And that's really become a, a, a very uh, a profitable business for them. And it makes 100% sense for the military because they can just pay somebody uh, you know, to put some uh, qualified opponents up in the sky uh, without mm -hmm. having to train these guys and buy the airplanes and pay for medical and you know right. all that kind of stuff so it's it's just a, a really smart business model for everybody so it's okay so it's fairly common i didn't know that yeah. um i know talking to i was talking to these jtacs years and years ago and i didn't realize at the time until they told me that you know for for to be to be qualified as a jtac you had to have so many controls you know annually or semi-annually or whatever it was and I didn't realize that they treated, at least at the time, helicopter controlling a helicopter uh, as a as a different thing. Like it was a different check mark in their logbook, wow. and so a lot of those guys didn't have currency on doing rotary wing casts. Um, and then a couple of years later, I met this Navy SEAL, and he was a JTAC, and he was talking about getting out of the military and trying to start a company that provided helicopters to do that. I, I just to this day, I don't know if such a thing ever existed. Ah, I um, mean, there's, there's a lot of really smart people that are, you know, yeah. the, the military has become quite specialized and smaller, yeah. right? So it's, there's an opportunity for a lot of those kinds of businesses, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, that'd be cool. Um, okay. So the thing that I, I was most interested in is talking about your time in the intruder, Okay. Uh, which admittedly I don't know too much about other than I've watched the movie flight of the intruder uh. and, uh, and, Oh, and your immediate response tells me a lot. Um, but I have, you know, read and stuff and, and as a kid growing up looking at pictures, like, Oh, it's just a neat looking aircraft. I was looking at a picture earlier of the cockpit and it, it, it gave me just nightmares. Like it seemed a very busy cockpit. Um, but, but tell us about the ASIC, like, like from, from the beginning, like, did you pick ASIC? Like, how did it work? Did you pick A6s? Did A6s pick you? How did you end up in that? <laughs> uh, out of, uh, out of winging in Kingsville, Texas, I put my, my choices were, uh, West coast Tomcats, East coast Tomcats, West coast A6s, and then some other stuff. So I didn't get Tomcats, uh, at first I got picked up for West coast A6s. Um, and after the initial disappointment, of not flying my first choice, uh, hmm. showed up at Whidbey Island and, uh, you know, began to get, uh, sucked into the, the Borg of, of the, uh, low level <laughs> intruder community. And it really is an interesting community or it was, yeah. uh, in the early nineties. Um, it, it's, uh, 
at the time, very insulated community up a, way up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, there were ASICs guys on the East Coast as well in, in Oceania, but you know, it was two separate communities essentially. Um, mm. And super proud of their mission, really proud of their aircraft, um, really passionate about you know, what they were doing. Uh, so you, you kind of get pulled into that and you get pumped up and psyched and, and proud to be part of this group of people that are, are doing this very special uh, and interesting mission with a great history. Um, so when I joined the ASICS community, uh, it was, I was in training when Gulf War I happened. Um, hmm. In fact, that Christmas uh, of 90 to 91, um, we were all pulled into uh, you know, a big auditorium and uh, the squadron CEO came in, all, all the students and, and the CEO came in and he said, hey guys, this is gonna be a big ass war. And um, you're probably, most of you are gonna go because we expect the mm. loss rate for the intruder to be pretty high. We're in an old airframe in a modern war. Um, yeah. And so- And that was sort of the prevailing theme of Desert Storm was, is everyone expected it to just be this absolute meat grinder. Yeah, cause you know, the, the Iraqi military was the fourth or fifth largest military in the yeah. world at the time. Yeah. Um, one of the so most advanced integrated air defense systems in the world, I think, at the time. And, and yeah. just coming off of the war with Iran where, you know, so now they're they're battle hardened. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'll never forget it. It was he was like that, you know, Baghdad is uh, the most second only to Moscow, the most heavily defended. Yeah. Uh, I add integrated, you know, uh, Sam structure on the planet. Um, and so we were pretty, you know. It was a very sobering moment. He's like, go home, hug your families, write your wills, and uh, get ready. Like, probably, you know, four months from now, you're all going to be replacing a guy that got shot down. So yeah. take your training seriously. And I was like, holy crap. So yeah. I did. You know, I went home for Christmas, told my parents, like, hey, there's a good chance I'm going to be going to war. Um, and, uh, you know, we all sort of made sure we knew we loved each other and then I went back and uh, before I even finished training, uh, 43 days later, the whole thing was over. So, <laughs> And then disappointment sets in. You're like, oh, I missed it. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I, I'm sure at the time I was 24 years old. Yeah, I was sure. probably a little, you know, a little yeah. stung. But I joined my squadron, VA-155, uh, literally the day they flew in from Gulf War One, And it was a, a squadron that was heavily involved in those 43 days. Mm. Uh, they did a lot of work dropped a lot of bombs. They went in low the first couple of days until they figured out that that was a bad idea. Um, <laughs> they lost an airplane. So there was an air crew that got shot down by a Sam. Uh, I, I knew them not super well, but I knew them from, you know, the club and, and training in the rag mm. and stuff like that. So it was, it was sobering to know a couple guys yeah. who had, uh, who I had known that were lost in combat and, and, you know, in our communities, it's not unusual for people to die. We've lost a lot of right. people over the years, but um, you know, the people that get killed in combat, uh, it's it's different. You know, it's something um, more somber to yeah. some degree. Um, but anyway, uh, the ASICs. Uh, it's for those of you that don't know, uh, it was a medium, uh, low-level day-night attack bomber, uh, and its sole job was to deliver ordnance on target. Um, and uh, it did that uh, 
primarily through the use of its enormous uh, ground mapping radar, which is why that nose of the A6 is so big and bulbous. It's the entire plane mm-hmm. is built around that radar. Um, oh, wow. Okay. And uh, the pilot, so the, the navigator would sit uh, right next to the pilot, maybe a, a little bit, a couple inches below and a couple inches behind so that the pilot can have some visibility out the right side. Um, yeah. And he or she would stick their head in this uh, radar and literally process the raw returns, like just the pulse returns of the radar. Oh, really? Yeah. And, uh, and then they would steer, they would maneuver the cursor through valleys or, you know, across terrain using hard returns that they had already studied prior to this mission. And, (sighs) And they could follow along and say, Oh, there's that, you know, bridge that I know and sort of anchor the cursor to that. Um, And then the pilot would get like this really rudimentary computer generated uh, terrain map with a, in the middle of it was the fixed airplane symbol. And you could just like fly your airplane symbol through the, through these little um, gray scale, gray and green scale um, terrain waves. If you saw it today, it would make you shiver. It's like, so it's like a Nintendo, you know, video game from the eighties. That's insane. Yeah. yeah, I, I, so, so you say he's moving the cursor. Are you getting that cursor? So, like, you're. Yeah, yeah, yeah we would get steering on the pilot side, but oh it, it was, it was processed through the computer. Um, it, it, you know, I'll say like for the the aircraft, uh, it was designed in the late '60s and started flying in the say mid '70s or early '70s. Uh, you yeah. know, t- saw some action in Vietnam. Um, it was incredibly sophisticated. I mean, there was sure. nothing else like it. Uh, and so, yeah, as a pilot, I was hand flying at 200 feet at night through, you know, weather (laughs) in canyons and valleys and popping up over ridges and stuff like that, just purely by hand manipulating this little, you know, fixed marker down the valleys that I was watching on this screen. So yeah. And then when, uh, you know, by the time I I was flying the airplane, it had gotten pretty sophisticated. We had this, uh, forward looking infrared blister on the chin which is like the uh, you know the wart on the witch's chin that it didn't yeah. improve the looks of the plane at all but it was incredible <laughs> uh, in terms of its sophistication so we'd get close to the target and the navigator would transfer from the radar to the FLIR so he would use you know the FLIR would slew itself to the radar and then he, you know he'd get himself pretty close to the target area and then uh, use the joystick to actually put the crosshairs on the target designate with the laser and I would follow that steering pickle pause pull drop the bomb uh, and it, it was either a, a you know manual iron bomb or uh, we could obviously drop uh, LGBs so yeah. it became an incredibly capable air-to-ground platform with uh, absolute precision it was really an amazing weapon that's really cool I, I didn't realize that I mean I know Willem Dafoe was leaning over looking to do a thing that's my experience with that but I didn't realize that he was basically that the, the navigator is basically part of the radar I mean he's having to translate it because that yeah. like the, that sounds so alien to us these days where all that Absolutely. stuff is computed for you but you're really trusting us dude that he's not dorking it up yeah that's wild. I, I will say that um, that community the intruder community was really built around that plane and the navigator like the pilots were just the chauffeurs for those navigators. We, we were, yeah. you know, it was fun flying through the valleys and dropping the bombs and stuff like that. Uh, but it was a BN's airplane. I mean, it was, it was meant to have a really capable guy and they worked their butts off. I mean, they would go through uh, a 
pre-flight planning. They'd go through these maps, these charts, and they would literally overlay yeah. it with um, a transparency and like shade where they expected the radar shadows to be. Um, right. so that they would have some sense. Cause you know, that the radar return is not going to look like a map. It's going to look like shadows. No. Yeah. And so they'd study that and then, you know, have these flip books full of radar shadows. It, it was a tremendous amount of work and, and skill and, and artistry. You know what I mean? Like that yeah. were craftsmen to a certain degree because they were, they had to interpret. Uh, oh yeah. They, That's a skill that you couldn't take a dude these days flying whatever and put them in that they would, they would crap themselves. I mean, yeah. that sounds terrifying. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, you're, I mean, cause I think, I mean, your head's down looking at radar returns, translating what they mean and knowing that, that outside of you, the world is going, how fast are you guys typically flying? Uh, 420 to 480. Oh my God. <laughs> Much yeah. faster than I thought you were going to say, <laughs> you know, at 200 feet, 400 knots. And the only thing keeping you from bumping into something is your ability to translate what this, this radar is telling you, ah, man, that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I've got this funny story of, of when that really hit home for me. I was, so in order to, in the fleet, in order to get, um, night level qualified, you would have to, you know, there was one sort of specific challenging low level that we flew, it took off out of Whidbey and flew up canyons and went by right by Mount hood. There was a huge Canyon by Mount hood where a couple years prior to us, uh, a plane had crashed and, and the two guys died. Uh, and then you went up and around Mount Hood into Boardman, Oregon, where the target was. And um, you'd fly it during the day. And then within a week, you had to do a night simulator. And the simulator was really amazing. Um, so you're you know, full on simulating flying it at night. Uh, and then that night, you would actually fly it at night. So I remember flying it during the day and sort of looking up around that, that valley by Mount Hood, looking around and thinking, wow, man. I can see why those guys crashed at the end of this box Canyon. This is crazy. Yeah. And we're low and there's a granite wall there. And then we do the simulator, no big deal. Simulator is a simulator. And then that night we're flying it and it's a full moon night, but there's a cloud cover, I don't know, thousand feet AGL or so. So we're below the cloud cover. It's pitch black mm -hmm. flying through this Canyon. And I'm just like, Oh, you know, it's okay. Just stay, keep the thing in this inside the thing, you know, don't, don't right. let the don't let the bars touch the side of those. Trust, little... trust your instruments. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, I'm and you're not wearing goggles. You guys didn't have goggles. No, no. They did okay. eventually get goggles, but I was already flying the Tomcat by then. But anyway, so I'm flying, okay. I'm flying this thing, and my BN is like his face is jammed into the hood. Like it looks like the end of a cat's butt. You know, he's just like <laughs> it's a big round black thing, and it's just and his hands are outside of the hood, manipulating all the controls. Um and you know, I'm I'm rolling and jinking and pulling G's and his head never leaves that that hood. And I look outside, there was like a break in the clouds and the full moon light kind of shone to my left a little bit. And I looked to my left and there was that granite wall I'd seen earlier that day. Just like mm. I felt like I could reach out and touch it. It was just glowing oh in the night. And I'm like, oh, 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 keep your eyes inside. Don't look outside. Don't look outside. So. Yeah. Gosh. That's incredible. Yeah, I didn't know that. Uh, I mean, I knew it was it had these capabilities, but I didn't realize to to the level that I guess it's somewhat rudimentary. But man, that's incredible. That'd be terrifying. I'm surprised that the navigators weren't just throwing up all the time. Were those guys getting sick? Just staring in that thing. I never I had guess one. Get used no, to it. I never had one get yeah. sick. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was like I said, a very prideful community. Uh, they all yeah. took it very seriously. They knew that it was that the A6 was. The, you know, a plane for them. So it was, yeah. 
it was a no i didn't I never had anyone get sick did they um did they have the ability to fly the aircraft as well nope and there there's really there's only one aircraft i can think of jet in the navy that's the s3 that had two pilot controls but everything else was oh, just okay one. yeah okay they're just along for the ride no matter what yep wow um so you said typically you guys were dropping like iron bombs or, or lgbs yeah i mean i'm assuming i i mean i did some reading before we came on and you, you were talking about desert storm and how yeah there was some uh and this was across the board this this was in every community and every war right we we go we go into the fight trying to fight the way that we had planned to and then and then realizing well maybe this doesn't work here so now we start adjusting you know i had an a10 guy on the show over a year ago he was in desert storm and he said the same thing the a10s you know very used to flying very low and then they get over to iraq and they realize well there's nowhere to hide (laughs) so now they start flying at eight thousand feet and they've never really done that before so now they're kind of discovering new techniques and procedures but it sounds like that same thing kind of happened with a6 community once desert storm hit as they realized that in this at least in this environment it didn't it didn't uh you didn't need to fly that way you could fly a little bit higher yep. um did that sort of take over the the training or did guys now you have to split your time and training to do one or the other i mean obviously you were doing a lot of low level stuff but did, was it kind of 50 50. yeah uh so i mean when you're not in combat it's pretty easy just to fly high and drop a bomb it's not there's sure. no challenge yeah. to that or relatively right. little challenge so we we still in a non-combat environment still spend all our time training for low level um okay. Also, is way more fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> in combat, we flew above whatever sort of the min threat level was, depending on, you know, that, like when I was in Somalia, we didn't expect anything worse than uh, handheld um, man pads. So right. our, our floor was about 5,000 feet there, unless you needed to get lower for tactical reasons. Um, in, a, in Iraq, uh, I, I can't remember. I think it was fifteen thousand feet, uh, so that you'd have enough time to, you know, maneuver from a SAM. Sure. But everything was yeah. pretty well categorized by then. We knew where all the SAMs were, and you know. But yeah, so as you were saying earlier, the first three days of Desert Storm One, all the A six guys went in low because that's what they had always done in that airplane, and they found out there was a couple things. One, the SA six came out, and it was. The radar was very capable down to, you could shoot the SA-6 down to, I believe, 100 feet. Um, So there was basically no altitude sanctuary anymore. And it's even more dismal now with the more current uh, SAMs. Um, So the the low-level sanctuary that the the intruder uh, enjoyed from some of the earlier SAM systems uh, was gone. And there's no valleys or anything to hide in, no trees to hide Mm -hmm. behind in the desert. So yeah, after after a few days of, of scaring the crap out of themselves, uh, they went up to twenty thousand feet or so, and then you know okay. working working with the prowlers and other jamming uh, platforms, and you know with integration of harm missiles to take out the SAMs, uh, the high altitude now became a, a sanctuary. So okay, what what kind of targets during Desert Storm were the A six is typically going after? You name it, everything. Um, troops in the open, bridges, factories, uh, tanks. Um, you know, I don't know if you remember, you're probably too young, but there was this thing called the Highway to Hell where the, the uh, Iraqis were retreating oh, yeah. out of Kuwait. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it was, it was a lot of different things in that. You know, they, they, it was the classic uh, interdiction, road interdiction where you 
take out the first few things and you take out the last few things and everybody in the middle is just sitting around waiting to get taken out. So yeah, uh, yeah. that thus the highway to hell. But, um, you know, it was anything that you can imagine, uh, you know, being delivered uh, air to ground. Uh, they did it. They took out some ships in the harbor. Um, uh, I don't think they did any uh, SAM stuff. Uh, you know, the SEAD, uh, I think the, the prowlers were, uh, doing all of that stuff in Desert War One, okay, and the and the and the Hornet guys as well, shooting the harm missiles. So yeah, there was there was just a ton of air to ground ordnance dropped uh, really quickly, and it, it destroyed you know all the IADs uh, within a couple of days, and most of the uh, the rolling stock very quickly after that. Yeah, uh, the Marines flew A six two, did they not? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they flew them uh, occasionally on the boat, but mostly uh, they were four deployed or you know, whatever, whatever Marines. Do. Okay. Yeah, I just learned this the other. I was talking. I don't know who I was talking to, but I didn't. I didn't realize. I guess I thought that Marines, more of the Marine aviation, was was afloat from the jet side, but it sounds like that that's not the case. Yeah, um, I never deployed with Marines, but they they do deploy, and I think they deploy now more than they used to. Okay. All right. Um. So, all right. So you showed up to your unit after Desert Storm, or, or the you, the unit was coming back from Desert Storm, is what you said. How how was that? Can I, that can be somewhat challenging. I showed up to my first unit, and they were literally just coming off of deployment. Yeah, um, no, it was Iraq. it was definitely challenging. I was the first new guy they'd gotten in a in a couple of years, and oh, they God. they were coming back <laughs> from a war cruise where they were like incredibly successful and very very brave, and they had yeah. lost a plane. So they you know they were a tight 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 group. Yeah. So it, it took a little while for me to break into that. Um, so yeah, that, what, what's that like being a new guy in a unit? Like, like I'm sure there was some sort of uh, we don't want to call it hazing, but there were events that occurred. I'm I'm certain. Yeah, I mean, Any- a lot of it. Um, if I had to do it over again, I would I would approach it differently. You know, I was like. Hmm. I was just so happy to be there and so psyched to be part of the group. And in my mind, I thought I was not their equal necessarily, but like, Hey, I want to be part of the guys. And I'm I'm not sure I showed the proper deference as I sort of burst into their tight knit community. (laughs) Um, But they weren't, you know, it, it was just, you know, that cartoon with like the dog that's just, happy and flopping around and is getting yeah. in everybody's way and they're just like dude we just get out of there just go right go get some coffee or something um yeah i'm sure i was that that guy uh and probably made it more difficult to integrate than it, it could have been otherwise but you know within six months you know it's impossible not to fold yourself into a squadron um you know you yeah. become part of the the brotherhood the family uh, very quickly and, and it became an awesome, awesome place to be. Um, and I was really happy, but yeah, that was an interesting six months. Uh, you know, it was a good study and sort of the psychology of a group think. Yeah. 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 It's hard not to come out of, you know, flight training and be excited. You know, you finally made it, you've been waiting yeah. for, you know, years, uh, to get to this point and now you're here, but and yeah. And then have that tempered by the fact that these dudes just went through all kinds of stuff and, yeah. Um, and yeah, they're they totally unimpressed with you. Right, absolutely. hundred <laughs> like, percent. Oh, great. You graduated flight school. That's fantastic. Exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, cool. So, I mean, 
as an ASIC, you've you've mentioned um, Iraq and Somalia. Did you did you deploy on was it like Southern Watch and things like that? Or, or I did. Yeah, I basically spent my entire career between the two Gulf Wars, and that was all okay. Southern Watch. And then I did Restore Hope in uh, Somalia, um, right when that okay. was starting up. So it was before you know the Black Hawk Down stuff. Right. What was that like? Because I've not talked to many people that were involved in any of that. Somalia was interesting. So, you know, we, we had spent uh, months and months um, in the Persian Gulf doing these, you know, interdiction uh, practice missions over Iraq um, and then flying fun low levels over Kuwait itself just to release a little tension. Um, but it was it was very Groundhog Day, you know, just the same thing over and over again. And then um, one day, you know, we, all of a sudden out of the blue, we got a word that we were pulling anchor. Um, well, we weren't at anchor, but we were leaving the, um, the operating area and steaming at max knots down to Somalia uh, to assist the United Nations. And it was cool. It was kind of like, you know, again, I'm only 24 years old at the time. It was very um, sensational. You know, it felt like uh, yeah. we are in the middle of something really novel and exciting. So we planned for the next couple of weeks, took a while to, you know, exit the Persian Gulf and take a right turn and head down uh, to Somalia. Maybe it wasn't even two weeks. It's not really that far. Um, and we learned en route that uh, basically, like I had never really thought about Somalia before that uh, in any capacity. But, you know, sure. you learn a lot when you put your mind to it. And we learned that uh, <laughs> the country uh, was basically a failed country, that the government had been... Um, uh, dissolved and that it was uh, warlords were battling over, uh, you know, control over the country. Um, yeah. And UN supplies, yeah. UN supplies, uh, there, there was a massive amount of starvation and the UN's trying to come in and, and bring food to the populace. But every time they land a C-130, these warlords would roll up with their, uh, technicals. Technicals are, uh, like pickup trucks with, you know, cannons and machine guns on them. Um, mm. and they needed some help and we're like, all right, man, we were happy to do that. So we pulled up off the coast and it was like, um, it was like, you know, watching what you would imagine like a little mini World War II invasion force would be. It was the Marine Corps, uh, you know, Amphib um, with the helicopters next to us. And there was a bunch of supply ships and there was, you know, our destroyers and frigates uh, were around. And we're only like, I don't know, 10 miles off coast because there's no threat. They, they, there's right. no artillery or anything or airborne threat from the... Somalians. So we're just basically within sight of the shore. Mm. And um, we would take off in, in pairs and just go fly patrols over the country, going from one forward air controller to the next saying, hey, what's going on? What's up? Do you need any help? Um, and it was interesting flying over Somalia. Like it wasn't at all what I expected. It was quite green. Um, mm. Once we started flying lower, uh, we could see that there were farm fields with crops and water in them. Like you could literally see the water reflecting in the, in the rows. And uh, we learned that, you know, that the crops were growing just fine, but the farmers had quit collecting them because um, as soon as they would harvest their crops, the warlords would roll up and, and take it all. So they were like, well, screw yeah. this, where there's no point in harvesting. We're just going to, you know, run away. Yeah. Um, so it was, you know, it was interesting and, and maddening. And, uh, <laughs> We found out one day, so we were limited to 5,000 feet AGL, uh, but being A6 guys, we really wanted to poke our nose around and, and get down lower. <laughs> I was having lunch one day in, in, the, in the wardroom and 
our controllers were the E2 guys and they were saying they weren't allowed to go over country. So they were saying, yeah, we lose you guys about, you know, 50 miles in or so, or a hundred miles in, we, you fall off our radar. We can still hear you, but we can't see you anymore. I know where this is going. <laughs> and uh, we were like, and, and we're all the same. Mate. We're all, you know, uh, what we call nuggets. Nuggets are first cruise um, Navy guys. So until you finish your, your first deployment, you're a nugget. And so we're all nuggets sitting around, you know, eating a cheeseburger and shooting the shit. And I was like, are you kidding me? So, you know, there's, there's no way anybody will know if we get down and fly the levels. And they're like, yeah, no. And we came up with a code word. I can't remember what it was. But whenever they were talking to us uh, and we dropped off their radar, they would say, you know, Starbright or whatever the hell the code word was. And yeah. down we would go. And we were zipping around. It was really fun. I mean, we saw all kinds of wildlife. and um, We'd be flying very low, like helicopter low, because it was, it was good terrain for that. Sure. And we've passed these chimneys and we're like, what the hell are those things? And they're almost to our altitude. And finally somebody figured out that they were the, uh, uh, they're not anthills. They were, um, termite, termite chimneys. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah enormous. Like 20 feet in the air. Uh, really, Jesus. really tall. Yeah. So it was, it was really cool. It was great flying around and, uh, probably the closest I ever came to dropping a bomb, uh, was in Somalia. I was flying around with my XO and we're towards the end of our window. And um, we got a call from a Ford Air Controller saying, hey, we got a C-130 that's getting you know, harassed. It's surrounded by these technicals. Uh, we need some support. And we're a little bit low on gas. So we sent the wingman home. And I'm flying with the XO, you know, the second in command of our squadron, who's this great sort of gruff, capable, you know, like an old school football coach kind of guy. And he's like, <laughs> all right, let's go check it out. And we're like, uh, we're, we're flying low and fast. And the... the the first line of you know defense for these guys to, was to do what's called a show of force, where you fly yeah. as low and as fast as you can right over the problem area to see if mm -hmm. you can get them to get the message. And we came over this ridge line, we popped down, and there's this little village, and I could see a C-130 with its ramp down and like four or five technicals around a few pallets of food. And I just, I was probably, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 feet and 500 knots right over their head um, just to say, hey, we're here. Yeah. And, you know, we, we pitched up and uh, to get up to a, like a bomb delivery altitude. Mm -hmm. And we did one circle and the guy's like, they're not leaving, man. You might as well just take one out. And we were a little <laughs> concerned because like, you know, they were relatively close to the C-130, but, you know, we had smaller bombs as well. So we're like, all right. So we did one more lap and the XO pulled the furthest one up on his FLIR and locked it with the, the, the FLIR and was about to turn the laser on and I'm rolling in and I'm turning the master arm on in the dive and they're like, all right, they're leaving, they're leaving. And, and uh, <laughs> that was it. That was as close as I ever came to dropping a bomb in anger. Yeah, the uh, the good old show of force. I mean, it, it, and it, it, I mean, I kind of equate Somalia to what we were trying to do in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? The counterinsurgency type stuff. Because you don't want to just roll in and just start dropping bombs and shooting missiles at everything because it's just it's not going to work out for you. No. So you but you've got to like present yourself as a threat and the, the show of force uh, definitely definitely works um, until it doesn't. I mean, the first time I took fire was was doing a show of force. I was like, well, they're not impressed. Yeah. <laughs> and you roll back around and start start doing. And, but then, like you said, I've had people not impressed. And then you, when you turn around and you, you point the aircraft at them, they, they suddenly change their tune. Yeah. Then um, it's impressive. What kind of, 
yeah, then it's like, well, all right, this guy means it. Um, what kind of uh, ordinance were you guys typically carrying? We had uh, the smallest LGB we could carry, which was 250 pounds. Okay, 250. Still which a big still, kaboom. But oh, yeah, yeah, it's a big kaboom. Yeah, but um, okay. Yeah, but you're not honking around these giant giant things that, that's good that's good yeah like, no i mean there was nothing there was nothing to bomb that needed a thousand pound bomb yeah yeah um well you said that you're you sent the wingman home was it was that fairly common practice as far as like fuel state you know hey you know it was not it was not and in okay. fact if the exo hadn't been with me i'm not sure what would have transpired because you know we really uh stress section integrity you know, sure. you always want to be checking out your wingman, make sure he's not getting shot so that he's yeah. doing the same to you. And there's no warning from man pads other than, you know, being able to see them. There's no, you're not going to get anything on your radar warning signal or your okay. you know, threat indicator. These days, the F-35 do, you know, they have that sophisticated yeah. system. But back in the day, you know, it was just eyeballs. Yeah, you didn't have like CMOS and all these things that sort of pick up the the signature or the plume of of heat yeah. and things like that. Yeah, you just yeah, had the radar the warning. Mark one, okay. mod zero eyeball. Right. Yeah. <laughs> How was the visibility in air? I know you said the bombardier kind of sits offset, so you can see. But I mean, was it pretty pretty clear? I mean, you're you're picking out termite mounds, so I guess it was pretty decent. Oh, it was great. So the, it was super good from like my left hip. It, I mean, the canopy, if you ever look at a picture of the intruder online or something, the canopy goes way low, just below, mm-hmm. like my the throttle quadrant was just below the canopy. Um, so about my left hip all the way up and around, uh, I could see really well at the right side, uh, unless it was, you know, to the back where the, uh, the navigator got in the way. Uh, forward visibility was decent, uh, but not amazing. Um, yeah. and then there was zero, uh, rearward visibility because the, the way that turtleback was shaped, uh, you can really sure. look back behind yourself at all. But in terms of yes. low level flying, it was, it was, it was really excellent visibility. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the forward visibility because obviously landing on carriers, you guys didn't have like a HUD or anything, right? No, just a bomb site. Yeah, so there's no no HUD to land with. So so landing on a carrier, which I know is a big deal to, to Navy pilots, but for you guys, sounds like it was like, I mean, you had nothing to help you. It was just you. Well, there was a, the equivalent of an ILS. Um, okay. It's called ACLS. So you just, uh, you know, you'd lock the needles up and you'd basically fly an ILS to, the, the book says you fly it to three quarters of a mile and then you transition out to fly the, the meatball, the optical landing system. Uh, in truth at night, um, you would fly the ILS or the ACLS until you just basically couldn't stand it anymore. And then you slowly start transitioning out. (laughs) I mean, it was because the, 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 uh, optical landing system is just a beam of light. And, you know, with the propagation of light, when you're three quarters of a mile away, you could be any, your, your head in that beam of light could be anywhere from, you know, at the bottom or the top. And that's, I think a 30 foot window. Right. So, you know, you'd come back into your needles. They were much more sensitive uh, until maybe half a mile or a third of a mile when you just literally the hair on the back of your neck is standing straight up and then you come outside for five, six seconds, make a last correction and crash. This might be a stupid question, but I just thought of it um, while we were talking. Because you say in ILS, the, the A, what does he call it? ACLS? Yeah. Is uh, how does how does the ship moving affect that, or does it not? Is it like on some sort of gyro or something? It is on a gyro. So, but the okay. you know, there, 
it would uh, occasionally, if the C states were high enough, it would get out of cycle. So it, it would start, mm. you know, the gyros were not the fastest, you know, they were attached to not the fastest jack screws on the planet. So, mm. you know, if the, if the, the, the ship itself would get affected by a certain cycle of waves where mm. it would, you know, the bow would come up and then, then the tail would come up and the gyro is trying to compensate for that. But if it, if it started lagging, then it got lost. And, you know, that always of course gave the pilots uh, zero confidence in their, in their equipment, which is always terrifying. Right. Yeah. Especially. So the around what 97, 96 is when the a six started be put away. Yeah, so my squadron was uh, the first squadron to get decommissioned in, uh, I think it was the spring of 93. And then I transitioned over to another squadron. It was our sister squadron in the air wing. Uh, and like two months after I got there, they found out that they were going to get decommissioned. So I spent <laughs> the next few months, that was like a June, July time period. I spent the next few months putting in my package to go transition over to the F-14 uh, mm. because you know, at the end of September, at the end of that fiscal year, we were, we were gone, decommissioned. The squadron was no longer going to exist. And uh, again, in retrospect, I'm surprised at how little like human resources were available to put people in, you know, other squadrons. They're like, all right, guys, you yeah. better find somewhere to go. Yeah. Uh, kind of on your own. Um, and I had, as you know, had always wanted to go fly the F-14. So I figured this was my chance. And uh, sure. I put a package in probably like, I don't know, a hundred pages, maybe not quite a hundred pages, but it was a thick, thick package to go, uh, apply to go fly the F-14. And it was not a common thing at the time for people to transition communities. Usually you're locked into one community for your whole career. What and, would uh, have been the natural progression then? Like if you uh, hadn't tried to get the F-14, where would you have ended up? I had already gotten orders to go be a, an instructor in the in the com, uh, training command, the, the training okay. squadron, the A6 training squadron. We we call it the RAG, the replacement air group. Um, mm -hmm. So I already had orders for that, but there were not enough uh, slots for pilots floating around. So they were perfectly yeah. happy to have people find other other communities. Um, so if if I had done nothing, I would have gone and been an instructor in the A6. Uh, training squadron, and then I would have gone, you know, three years there and three years back out to sea because the the intruder itself lasted another ten years, I think. So I, I, okay. I would have been able to do my whole career flying A6s if I had wanted to do so. Um, okay. Other guys ended up going to fly the uh, EA6B Prowler because it was co-located um, in Whidbey Island, and it was kind of a, a similar airframe, not exactly the same. It looks the same, but it's not really the same. It's much more difficult to land on the ship and. You know, the only ordinance it carries is the the harm missile to, to uh, take out um, and enemy radars. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, a lot of guys they bought houses, they got married, they had kids in school. They were just like, "Ah, oh, screw sure. it, I just want to fly the Prowler." Um, other guys went to fly the Hornets down in Lemoore. Um, a few people went to fly the S threes down in San Diego. So, there, and a bunch went to the training command down in Texas to go, you know, be instructor pilots for. The, uh, uh, aspiring naval aviators. So it, we really mm -hmm. dispersed all over the place. Um, and, you know, there's a bunch of us that went off to fly the F-14. So so you didn't have to necessarily put in a packet. You were just doing that to try to get to where you wanted to go. Exactly. I knew exactly okay. what I wanted to do. Uh, yeah. There was a transition board that met, uh, you right. know, 
semi-regularly. I can't remember what the frequency was, but I knew what I wanted. Um, and you know, like, like with anything in the military, if you, if you leave yourself to the whim of other people, it's unlikely you're going to get, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what, what yeah. it is that you want. So I very proactively sort of pushed that rope, uh, as hard as I could to get the community that I wanted. And I got endorsements from, you know, the Tomcat COs that were in my air wing from the commander of the air wing, you know, from my own commanding officer, I, I, I probably went a little overboard, but I, I didn't want to, I can't risk it. I can't risk it. Yeah. This is what I wanted. I wanted to do this. And, and, uh, you know, I want everybody to know that I was excited to be part of that community. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's why I always tell guys, you got to be your own career manager and that's a perfect example. We, um, when we got rid of the, the OH 58, which is what I flew, um, you know, it was the same thing. It was the musical chairs and right. everyone, everyone could do the count and say, well, there's not enough chairs here for everybody. So, yeah. um, they had the boards and stuff and, you know, and it's a, it's a, it's a troubling time in any service when this happens. And I've talked to air force guys when they're, you know, whatever airframe they were on went away is, um, it's, it's never a game of, well, the best qualified will stay. No. You know, it's like, you could be the worst Tomcat guy, but we're not getting rid of the Tomcat. So we're not getting rid of him to make room for the best a six guy that wants to come over and be a Tomcat guy. Exactly. So, yeah. You know, like your ship is the one that's sinking, not the whole fleet. So you got to figure out how to get on board one of these other ships. So that's exactly right. Yeah. But that's a and, great opportunity for you because you wanted to fly Tomcats. I mean, you obviously enjoyed your Tommy a six, but now you get the best of both worlds. Yep. Yeah, it was great. And, uh, I'm not sure about your communities, but in ours, it was, very insular like the a6 guys were only a6 right. guys and so uh to yeah. make and the tomcat guys were super snooty they're like well you weren't a tomcat you weren't a fighter guy you know at birth so right. your dna is is you know altered <laughs> and there's probably no way you'll ever be able to dogfight. so you know if we take you you're you're we'll we'll just have to carry you along as the bastard stepchild so it was, it was yeah. an interesting mentality i'm i don't know that that exists anymore because there's really only two airplanes that fly in the Navy now. So, um, yeah. but th- at the time, you know, we had a sixes, Tomcats, S threes, Prowlers, th- there was all kinds of different airplanes. I, th- I feel like I have zero empirical data on this, but I feel like across the board, that sort of mentality has gone away. Um, and I don't know if it's maybe just, we have more access to information. We have more access to be able to communicate with one another, but you know, I, I get that sense that it's not, as as insular as it once was just across the board i mean i, I see it even in the army it, it didn't seem to be that way i hope so because you're right it's you you know you got to be able to we've had guys that left kiowa's flying scout and attack and now they're flying chinooks you know and now they're flying blackhawks you know they, or they go apaches yeah um so and i mean how was that transition for you going over to that 14 was it <sighs> it was deal? awesome no it was great yeah. it was probably the best year of my navy career it was so much fun um the a6 and the tomcat were both built by the same company you know grumman so yeah. uh, all the buttons look the same all the sort of philosophy of the guts the hydraulics and the electrical systems were all the same so the the uh the hardcore study that every pilot has to do before ever sitting in a cockpit was really mm-hmm. easy for me that you know that one month of ground school where you're learning every nut and bolt and every every you know, how the fuel system works and stuff like that. Um, yeah. That was really easy for me, which was great. Um, and the instruct I knew a bunch of the instructors from either the fleet 
or from the training command because they were, like I said, I was supposed to go be an ASICS instructor. So they're all on their same timelines. They're now rolling back to be a RAG instructor. So I had a bunch of buddies that were instructors there and it just felt super natural. I had a really wonderful time, good friends. Um, the plane was a dream to fly. It was pretty radically different from the A6. Um, and uh, I had a I had a blast. It was wonderful. Yeah, I was looking at, like I said, I was looking at pictures of the cockpit, and I, I did notice that those weird, like, little squarish buttons. Yeah. Uh, much like I'd seen in the Tomcat. I was like, oh, yeah, that looks familiar. And then I was like, oh, yeah, they are the same, built by the same guys. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, from a performance standpoint and from an employment standpoint, just absolutely night and day, yeah? Yes. Now, there was a tremendous amount of overlap at that point. So the Tomcat, prior to, you know, 19... You know, prior to the Gulf War, or maybe until just after the Gulf War, was the king of the block in terms of air-to-air. There was nobody right. else out there that could match it on the planet. It was uh, uh, the, the way that they had come up with that radar with a track wall scan and the ability to shoot six targets and track 24. And this Phoenix missile was, it was all totally revolutionary. Uh, the, the aircraft itself could perform really well um, in a dogfight. Um and there was nothing really out there that could compete with it for a good, I don't know, 20 years. Uh, and then the MiG-29 came out and the SC-27. And then on the, on, the, on the U.S. side, the F-15s got upgraded to the point where they had AMRAMs and, and more sophisticated radars and, and the F-16s. Uh, F-16s has always been a really capable air-to-air platform, even though the Air Force really mainly uses it for air-to-ground. Um, yeah. So all of a sudden, the Tomcat guys were like, holy crap, we're now average at best. What are we going <laughs> to do to, you know, stave off our, our execution? Um, and so they had to incorporate air to ground into their, into their mission. Um, and I just happened to come along at a perfect time for that. So um, there was a, a, a lantern pod that was strapped on to the, uh, under the Tomcat. And the lantern is a... a basically the FLIR like the A6 had, but it was a, it was a bolt-on. It wasn't integrated into the airplane. Um, right. And it just so happened that it was a really easy integration, relatively speaking. Nothing's ever easy in, in the military, but sure. uh, it was a relatively easy integration to put the lantern pod onto the Tomcat. And all of a sudden, you had this incredible, fast, long-range, long-endurance, um, self-defending bombing platform uh, with a phenomenal uh pod that had a huge screen in the back seat the rio uh you know had this really big uh screen compared to say like the hornets and the f-15s at the time um Mm -hmm. and so they could you know use a gps uh coordinates given to them from a fac or somebody else and slew the target slew the cursors onto the target lock it up and you know we could deliver any air-to-ground lgb ordinance there was uh and it became this incredibly uh, capable, probably the most capable uh, bomb delivery platform in the Navy for a good 10 years until, until the uh, GPS guided bombs came out. And then of course, all that stuff became irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I thinking like the parallels between our own experience in the army, when we got rid of, we had the Kiowa and we had the Apache and I don't know how familiar you are with those aircraft, but the Kiowa was a little, too light to fight, too slow to run, scout helicopter okay. um, that was lightly armed. Yep. And then when the Army got rid of it, it said, okay, Apache guys, you're going to do 
the attack stuff that you've been doing, but you're also going to start picking up some of this reconnaissance type stuff that the, that the Kiowas have been doing, um, which they can do and they've done, but you know, they, they kind of teased at it, you know, they, they didn't do it nearly as much. And so now you've got this, this, uh, influx of, of Kiowa guys now flying Apaches. Right. And suddenly those skills are transferable yep. to where probably 10 years ago, they wouldn't have given a shit. You know, they'd be like, oh, I don't care about all this stuff. And now exactly. suddenly they're talking a new language because they have to. And so I can only imagine the similarities that you're going to this community where they're like, yep, we're, we're really good at dogfight. Oh, wait, no, we're not as good as we once were. Now we got to drop bombs. And now you have this community of guys entering it from the A6. It's like, oh, hey, I know how to drop bombs. Yeah. So it's good timing. Well, it was really funny, too, because I really didn't care about dropping bombs at that point. I just wanted to do the air-to-air -air stuff. I'm like, man, I want to be yeah. a fighter pilot. <laughs> I'm, I'm done with this bomb dropping stuff. Although born I, too late. <laughs> yeah. I will say that the air-to-ground stuff, uh, I'm sorry, that the uh, strafing with the 20 millimeter was awesome. What, what was the size mm. of uh, the gun you guys had? Uh, we had 30s Yeah, the Apache. Not nice. to flex on you, but yeah. No, no, um, it's fine. I, you know, look, I was going supersonic. Come on. Yeah, I know. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> but um, still, I mean, how fun is it to shoot the gun? Oh, it yeah. is like essentially the most fun thing you can do. So yeah. cool. Yeah, and I can imagine strafing at the speeds that you're going and coming down out of altitude. I mean, we used to work with A-10s here at, uh, at Fort Bragg where I was stationed. Yep. And, um, you know, those guys just coming in out of four or 5,000 feet. And, you know, they're going relatively slow yep. and still just putting rounds, you know, on these targets where you're like, there's no way I'm lazing this tank. There's no way they're all going to, oh, every round hit the tank. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so, it yeah, it's so fun to watch fun. Jets, Jets yeah. do that stuff. And I imagine for you guys, it's a lot of fun. Oh, it was great. I mean, just strafing. Like, we had tanks on the range up at Fallon. So, you know, you roll in and put the little pipper on the tank and squeeze off 100 rounds and watch the rounds you know, the sparks coming off the tank. Like, yeah, oh, that is so yeah, cool. I like, the sparks. I like it when it sparks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, um, I mean, and that's the thing, like, you know, dropping laser guided bombs. I imagine it's a lot like shooting a hellfire. It's, it's this very unemotional event. It's like, just keep the, keep the thingy on the other thingy and just exactly. wait for the round to hit where you're going. It's, there's nothing exciting, exciting. You know, do you guys, did you shoot rockets at all? Do you guys have rocket pods? Uh, in the A6 we did, we, I shot both, Two really? seven fives okay. and five inch zoonies. So that was super fun. Uh, Tomcat, oh, yeah. I don't think had rockets. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't think it okay. did. I never shot rockets in. The, I shot a bunch of air to air missiles, uh, the Phoenix okay. missiles, uh, in a in a sidewinder, but I never shot rockets. Okay. Yeah. How how did you like rockets? Though you said you liked it on the A6. Oh man, that was great. That was almost as fun as as shooting the gun. You yeah. Know, super fun to put the dot on the tank pull the trigger and, you know, see this big plume, of, you know, the, the noise, of course, and the big plume yeah. of smoke and that you just follow it all the way down to the target. It's yeah. Really. Yeah. And I imagine that the, the challenge, because I mean, there were dudes in Vietnam that shot themselves down with rockets. Really? Because of this. Yeah. Um, there was a dude, he was a POW. I, I mean, I shouldn't laugh, but he was a POW because he shot himself down. I think he was captured for like five years. Oh. Um, but uh, he had shot like just just unloaded like the whole pot or, or whatever on something and uh, and basically run into, you know, debris or run. into Oh, OK. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. He fragged himself. Yeah. Yeah. Like in the air and not like he got too close to the target or anything like that. But um, yeah, he ended up, you know, downing himself and getting captured. Oh, but um, yeah. I mean, it's obviously when you're going 90 or 100 knots, it's not something you have to worry about. But you guys are cruising. Yeah, I mean, we were only going like I'm, 
I'm trying to remember the exact numbers, but like in the A6 shooting rockets, it was probably 400 knots. And then the Tomcat yeah. shooting the gun was probably about the same 400 knots. So okay. fast, but what? not like supersonic fast. Yeah. And you couldn't go supersonic in the A6, right? No, there was no okay. way you could, yeah. you could go to 45,000 feet pointed over straight at the ground, <laughs> go full power and it would laugh at you and just park itself at whatever <laughs> 0.85 or 0.9. Yeah. So that had to be a new experience too, getting F-14 and I. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was great. Well, cool. So landing the F-14 uh, was probably a little bit different experience than two on the carrier from what you were used to. Was it easier or harder? Oh, it was way harder. Um, really? Yeah. So the, the A-6 had wings that were swept at about 45 degrees. Uh, it was pretty draggy. The lift only came from the wings and the engines were these great instantaneous response, um, you know, straight up jets, not yeah. turbo fans, but, uh, you know, just jet engines. Yeah. So like if you pulled the throttle back, you know, just a smidge, the engines would immediately respond. Hmm. Um, and so you could fly the ball with great precision. And I, I had, I was a top 10 ball flyer in the A6, which is kind of a, it's a competition amongst the pilots of the air wing. Sure for a, a certain like say a month and a half or two months um you know the guys with the or guys and gals with the best grades get top 10 patches mm -hmm. so i was a top 10 ball flyer in the a6 i come over to the tomcat i'm like i can do this i've done this before well the tomcat is aerodynamically much different um the wings are swept in, in the landing configuration they're swept to 20 degrees and a third of the lift is from the bottom of the fuselage like if you've ever looked right. at a tomcat it looks like a frisbee yeah um and the engines, the TF-30 engines anyway, the ones that I flew, uh, had a huge lag in them. So you would pull the power and nothing would happen for a few moments. It seems like forever, but it was probably mm -hmm. like two seconds or something like that. So to make a correction, you would have to pull the power off what you thought it was appropriate and then put it back on. Right. And then you were hoping that a moment later, the engines would go, Pew, boop. Um, <laughs> but you didn't really know. Um, yeah. And so it was really easy to get lost in the power movements with the TF-30s because you would you 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 would kind of lose sense of where center was and start chasing what you thought it was. Um, and then uh, the the final thing that made it difficult was uh, it was such a flat airplane that when you pulled the power, like in the A6, if you pulled the power, it would just start going down. Mm. Um, in the Tomcat, when you pull the power, it would just continue on that whatever that vertical speed vector was and get slower. So you had to mm. sort of push the, you had to very gently influence the nose to, you know, make it go down or come up uh, to the proper vertical speed. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a lot more challenging. It was eye opening. Uh, and also, you know, the wings were huge. They were a yeah. 54 foot uh, sweep. So, you know, you only had a center line became incredibly important. You had to land right on center yeah, line on the, on the ship because there's planes to the left and planes to the right. So yeah. Um, yeah. That's a big airplane. It was a big airplane. Yeah. The big fighter was the nickname. And it's, I mean, it's bigger than A6, right? It's certainly wider. Yeah, yeah. So I think yeah. the A6 wingspan is 36 feet. I'm just spitballing here. And yeah. the Tomcat is 54 feet. So it was a okay. much bigger wingspan. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge honking beast. Well, one of my early landings in the 737 was characterized by my Czech Airmen as a carrier landing. So I, I yeah. feel like we're brothers. Uh, I know yeah, what you we mean. Are. Just slamming yeah. it down on the ground. <laughs> Congratulations. That's the way it's supposed to be done. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you've seen that video. 
that's gone around that shows like yeah, yeah. the F8, <laughs> the F16, the F18. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I was, uh, my career in the military, uh, straddles, um, gender integration. So prior mm. to women flying, we, there was a lot of inappropriate things, but this one's kind sure. of funny. And I think, um, you know, not too offensive, but we used to say, yeah. you know, to, to dig at the air force, we would say flare to land, squat to pee. <laughs> I have heard that. Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't hold anymore because everybody flies everything. Right. But yeah. It was, it was funny at the time. Those jokes don't age well, but yeah, I, the, the old, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. I, I just think about the things that we used to joke about, even 2005, 2006 timeframe that would just get you completely just destroyed career wise. Yeah. And I can only imagine the nineties and eighties. Yeah. Outrageous. So you you got out and you're flying you're flying big jets now, right? You're in the airlines. I'm in the airlines. Yep. What do you what are you flying? Uh, I'm a A330 captain, and I'm about to transition over to the A350. Oh, okay. So you're you're a side stick man. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Well, it, it I've discovered I'm new to the airlines, but I've discovered just this sort of rivalry between the the Airbus and the Boeing guys. And yeah. it seems to all revolve around can can you uh, have a tray for your food? So, yeah, that's, the <laughs> that's what it boils down to. Yeah. It does seem uh, to boil down to that. <laughs> well, I will say so. I, I've flown a lot of international in my life, in my mm. career. I mean, um, I flew uh, sixteen years on the the seven five seven six and did okay. a lot of international on that. Mm. And having that yoke in the you know in the way when you're just yeah. trying to chill flying over the Atlantic or Pacific. Uh, this pain in the ass yeah. having no yoke. It's not so much the trade table for me. It's just the ability to sort of yeah. stretch your legs in a more normal way. It, it's much more comfortable. That's true. I, I've been, I guess, blessed with my job. I mean, I've, I've done a couple long flights. I think the longest I did was like five and a half hours. We did from Vancouver to Raleigh, um, yeah. which we were like, I don't know if we have gas for this, you know? Um, but I can see that. Yeah. Like normally my flights are relatively short, you know, hour and a half, two hours, maybe. But, um, yep. yeah, I, I can see that definitely, especially I, I've, I'm really tall. I have really long legs. So just get climbing into that thing is. Yeah, me too. Close. I mean, I'm, I'm six, three, I don't know what you consider oh, okay. really tall, but I'm six, four. So yeah, we're, we're, All right, you win. we are brothers. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm, was climbing into the a six pretty challenging. Was it pretty cramped? No, no. Both the a six and uh, the F 14 were huge cockpits. The F five was tiny. It's, oh, a, I can imagine. it's a small, my, my knees are, are sort of jammed up there. Yeah. Um, and the A4 was, although the leg room was fine, it was, I had to turn my shoulder sideways to close the canopy in the A4. Jeez. So yeah. The Kiowa tight. was super tight. My knees were up on the dash and, and, and we sat side by side and, you know, the Velcro on your uniform would get caught on the other guy's uh, Velcro and you're ripping off and stuff. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it sucks being it's a tall guy. Fun. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't trade it though. No, no, me either. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, but being on a carrier, was that, that was probably pretty tough though, being a tall guy. Yeah. Or do they make them better now? Like I, the only carrier I've ever been on was like, like whatever that, what is that one in San Diego? Is like the Midway? Uh, yes, I think it is the Midway. Yeah, yeah. it is the Midway. Yeah. Which is an older, you know, like 1960s era. But I mean, that thing, walking around in that was ridiculous. I was just bent over the whole time. Yeah, I don't think my posture's ever really fully... I recovered from that. I stand a little bit of a, a wary hunch so that I don't skin my head on anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, 
I have a, I mean, I have a funny story, another gender integration story of walking through the carrier every, and you've been on the midway. So you know that every like 30 or 40 feet, there's a big watertight hatch that's up to about just below the knee. Um, and it's a sharp, relatively speaking, sharp edge metal lip. And you you just kind of get used to zoning out and walking through those and no big deal. You just lift your legs. And it was our first at sea period with women on board. And I, I'm not a morning person. I was just getting up and I'm trying to make my way to the wardroom to get my coffee, to get everything started. And um, not really paying attention to anything. And somebody walks by me and it smells like clean and there's a perfume into it. And I was like, what the, and I turned my yeah. head and look right <laughs> as I came to one of those, uh, they call knee knockers. And I put a divot in my shin that is still here to this day. I mean, I no. can pull my, yeah. Really? Oh yeah. <laughs> my God. Down, pull the skin off down to the bone. Oh my and, God. That was it. That was my. That was the cost of gender integration right there. (laughs) Yeah. You learned. Instant karma. Yep. Well, uh, awesome. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you taking the time um, and responding to me so quickly. Um, My pleasure. And uh, yeah, I just learned a ton about the A6, which is really what I wanted to do. And uh, I'm sure everyone that's listening will will greatly enjoy that. And um, yeah, it was awesome. I, I, we should do something again in the future. It's been a blast talking to you. For sure. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you're the people that listen to your podcast are gamers, but I just, uh, I'm a writer. I wrote a a book called lines of the sky and um, I I made a documentary about F 14 pilots called um, speed and angels. And I got asked to write the script for a video game about a year and a half ago. uh, And that was super fun. And it's a mashup of the documentary and the book. Um, and it's a DCS video game. So it just came out literally today. Um, the trailer dropped today. It's, it's kind of a cool trailer. So if any of your crew are into DCS digital combat sim, the game is available now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, I, I dabble in DCS myself. Um, I have, Ah, I have a YouTube channel and, and do stuff and, and, uh, mostly Apache stuff, but I like to fly everything. Um, in fact, that's how I found you because I'm on a different podcast, the air combat sim podcast, which you did a thing with, uh, with Greg from reflected. I know Greg. Um, and so I was doing the editing and, uh, I was listening to you talk and you said something about the a six and that's what I was like, Oh, I was like, what? Cause I, I had mooch on. So I kind of, you know, I had F 14 stuff kind of covered a little bit, but, uh, when I heard you just mention a six and I texted Greg, I was like, Hey, I was like, Does this guy fly the A6? He says, Yeah. I was like, Okay, can contact him for me. <laughs> so that's how we that's got linked awesome. up. So yeah, awesome. small world. Yeah, definitely. I'll uh I definitely wanna well, I gotta get good at the F14 and then I'll try that campaign. I I, I dabbled with the F14, I suck at it. And for a lot well, of some of the reasons you said, like the throttle, like I just you know, I'm, I'm not anticipating it enough. And, yeah. yeah. Well, it is an F14B, so it's got the G engines in it. Um and it's the first, it's a 15 mission campaign. The first 10 missions are training. So it's like going through the training, you know, the okay. training syllabus. Yeah. So, and then the last five are combat. Okay. Yeah. I'll definitely have to check that out. I, um, yeah, I like the F-14. I think it's a, it's an interesting aircraft. I mean, you know, as a child of the eighties, you can't not love it. You know, yeah. I remember hating the Hornet when it came out because I was like, ah, this is stupid. The, the F-14 is yeah. better, you know, and yeah. now everybody loves the Hornet. Well, not the C. They love the E's and F's. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Very true. All righty. Well, thanks a lot for, for this. And uh, yeah, it's been yeah, awesome. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Yeah. Super fun talking. Cool. 
You're Let a me great see. interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, everyone. I think there's a lot of bad guys in there, because like I said, when we flew over, we saw a bunch of... Uh... Right, Alright, so I told you guys that uh, I was waiting on some information. That's why the episode was delayed. So I'm here to share that information with you now. Uh, I've been working with some gentlemen who used to work over with Jello on the Fighter Pilot podcast. And they've kind of, uh, if you have not noticed, there's been a, a change in the platform there at the Fighter Pilot podcast. And uh, these guys have gone off and they've started to do their own thing, which they're calling Authentic Media. And essentially what this is, is a subscription service. I want to say it's about, uh, I think it's like $6 a month. Uh, and you get uh, various forms of content delivered to you. Uh, I'm not sure the volume. I, I want to say there was at least three or four uh, hours worth or, or episodes worth of content uh, provided uh, every month. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I'm going to be working with these guys. Uh, there's some other names you may uh, recognize over there. I know Rain from uh, the Afterburn podcast is uh, working with these guys as well. Uh, I believe uh, Mooch Ward Carroll is over there and, and some others. Uh, and of course, your humble host here uh, is also doing some uh, some work for these guys. In fact, I'm Finishing up some interviews for a series on special operations aviation. It's not very different than what we do here on this podcast, uh, but it has some different guests and maybe some different venues. And it's not just aviation. We're also looking at some other ways to talk about, you know, military technology, ground warfare, all, all kinds of things. So it, it is kind of growing. It's in its fledgling early stages. Uh, but if you'd like to go check it out, you can. And you can use the promo code CASMO, that's C-A-S-M-O. And if you sign up, uh, I believe you get uh, 20, 25% off uh, your first month subscription. Uh, so it might be worthwhile to take a look over there. But uh, again, just use that code. You know, it gives me some credit. Uh, gets you some uh, some money off of the initial uh, subscription if it's something that you want to check out. Anyhow, that's about it for this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed the uh, conversation with Paco. I did a ton. It was a lot of fun talking with him. And uh, he had a great story that we shared with our uh, Patreon. Uh, you can support this channel, of course, through Patreon. There's various uh, levels there that you can take a look at. Uh, but uh, yeah, thanks for supporting the channel. Thanks for listening to the show. And we'll see you guys later. I've got a bunch of episodes lined up here. In fact, I've already done one interview yesterday. I've got another one tomorrow, and I'm working on getting somebody that flew the Comanche on the show. Uh, we're just waiting on approval from the company because there's some some stuff that they may or may not want talked about, things like that. So we're just kind of waiting on that approval process, and I'll be excited to share just the little bit that I learned uh, talking to this guy on the phone for about five minutes. It just blew me away about the Comanche. I didn't know some of this stuff. So I'm really hoping to get him on and be able to talk about all these things. So I will look forward to that. Again, thanks a lot for supporting. Thanks, Scott, for listening. We'll see you later.